section of the message becomes the big idea in my, in my sermon. This one was challenging. And the reason it was challenging is because it's a whole chapter. It's massive. But as I read this chapter over and over and over again, and this is probably late last night where I felt like I'm not even sure what the big idea is anymore. But one thing I know is as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is I'm overwhelmed by the sense of love and care and provision that God has for his people, for his church. It can be easy, and I'll just confess, to take being a part of a church for granted and to think it's just a part of life. Is it just this church or is it that church or, you know, whatever. God loves his church. God cares for his church and he provides for his church in such a way that we lack nothing we need to accomplish his purposes. And quite honestly, as I read that and came to that late last night, I was overwhelmed when I reflected on how much God loves us and cares for us. It's amazing. Paul writes this letter. And what we'll see throughout our study is that he addresses one problem after another. One problem after another. One issue that the church is struggling with. And what we see here in chapter 3 is that first, in verses 1 through 4, the problem that he's addressing is a surprising problem. It's a surprising problem. If you look down, you'll see it in verses 1 through 4. As Paul begins to address or correct a particular problem, consider how he does and does not address his audience. He says this in verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual. Paul calls those who are at Corinth brothers. He refers to them as brothers. Beginning of the letter, he calls them the church of God. He refers to them as saints, as those who are sanctified, who are holy. In verse 4, we saw this several weeks ago of chapter 1. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Here in verse 1, he calls them his brothers. So Paul refers to them as those who are the church, who have received Jesus, and who are spiritual. But then, in a surprising term, in the exact same sentence, the first verse, he switches and says, but I cannot address you as spiritual. While Paul calls them brothers, he goes on to say that he's not able to address them as spiritual. And this had to have been shocking to them to read these words. After all, in previous chapters, he shows the cross is the ultimate dividing line throughout all of humanity. And those who embrace the way of the cross receive the Spirit of God. And so as the cross divides humanity, there emerges only two groups of people. Only two groups of people. There are those who are spiritual, who are chosen, who are holy, and then there's those who are not. There's two groups of people. But yet here, it seems as if he's referring to them both as spiritual and not spiritual. So what's going on? Are they Christians or aren't they? 
What's up with this apparent contradiction? Now, it's very important for us to understand, not for a minute in writing this letter, does Paul suspect that these people are not a Christian? He's shown us this already. Paul has gone to great lengths to remind them of who they are. He sees them, however, as people who are not mature in their spirituality. All of the problems that, are, that they face as Christians can be boiled down to the fact, there is, as they face as a church, is that while they are Christians, guess what? They're not acting like it. While they have received the, spiritual, the Spirit and are spiritual, they don't act like it at all. They are spiritually immature people, and what they need, quite frankly, is to grow up. They need to grow up. They've not fully grasped the message of the crucified Christ and are not being properly shaped by it. Instead of reflecting the kingdom principles, the character of God that God has designed his church to reflect to the world around them, they're acting just like the world around them. And this should be shocking to them, right? To hear, you can't address us, your, this church you help build the foundation for, you can't address us as spiritual. Now, mind you, this is only a matter of a few years after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. And already we see massive problems in the church. Massive problems. Rather than being influences, influencers for Christ in the city of Corinth, the city of Corinth is influencing them as the people of God. It's working the opposite way than it's supposed to. Now, since he doesn't feel comfortable or accurate to address them as spiritual, he uses another phrase. He calls them people of the flesh. Other translations may say worldly, fleshly, or carnal is a word that's often used here. Now, oftentimes when we think of carnal sins, oftentimes our mind gets kind of focused narrowly on sort of sexual sins. But here it's used in a broad sense, a broad sense. They are, he goes on to say, acting like infants, not ready for spiritual nourishment that they needed. They are behaving, he says, in a human way. They're acting merely human, not as new creatures who've been born again. In verse 3, he says, you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? There is a look about these spiritual people. The type of fruit that the Spirit produces as a church should look like Galatians 5. It should look like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But instead, when Paul looks at this church, he doesn't see those fruits. He sees jealousy and strife. Jealousy and strife. This, he says, is the human way of living, jealousy and strife. This is how the world behaves, he says. It has no place in the church. Now, this is a serious claim. He's calling them out for their sin. How can Paul make such an assessment? What evidence does he have to support his claim? That they're, they're gripped rather by things like love and joy and peace and kindness and faithfulness? That their heart is gripped and tainted with jealousy and strife? What's the behavior that's happening out here that allows him to make that assessment? It tells us in verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So this 
jealousy and strife is laying root in their hearts and it's producing the fruit of divisiveness and factionalism that has plagued this church. This, this is the result ultimately of two significant things. First, a misunderstanding of the centrality of the cross. This is why Paul has opened up this letter, spending so much time describing to them that you are a people who are to be shaped primarily by the cross. The way of the world is not the way of Jesus. The way of the cross is the way of, the, of Jesus and should be the way for the church. There's a misunderstanding of the centrality of the cross. Now, I'll be the first to admit, back in the day, the cross wouldn't have been the, the most attractive thing to place at the center of a movement, right? It was the thing that was designed to shut movements down. But God in his infinite, infinite wisdom reversed that and placed it at the very center so that the Messiah would be a suffering savior. Their leader would be a man who was humiliated, who was strung up and executed like a criminal. And he was placed at the center of the movement. And what these people are guilty of doing is removing the cross from the center of their church. Paul says, let it not be. Let it not be. It must be at the very center so there's a misunderstanding of the centrality of the cross, but there's also a misapplication of the gospel as it relates to the nature of Christian leadership. So they're not applying that same cross, crucicentric sort of uh, application to the way that they view leaders specifically. It's a misunderstanding and it's a misapplication of it. Rather than finding their significance in and through Christ and his cross, they want to find it by aligning themselves with particular leaders, forming separate factions. And their association with these popular leaders in the church is a means of claiming superiority for themselves. So the way this works is, oh, there's a popular leader here. If I can align myself and claim him as my leader, then I can elevate myself and say, hey, I belong to Paul. I'm better than you. Now, this, this seems kind of strange, maybe, for some of us in a church setting. It should not. It happens all the time in churches at this very day. It happens in our world. We're constantly, constantly fighting as a church against things like virtue signaling or aligning, you know, giving opportunities to align ourselves with particular groups or identities as a hope to elevate ourselves above our neighbor. And that's not the way of the cross. That's not the way of the cross. The way of the cross is that the, the things of this earth that will be exalted are those things that are weak and humiliating. That's the way of the cross. The world defines, our world defines significance with characteristics like prestige, popularity, power, prosperity. And if you want to be significant, if you want to be seen as significant or valuable, you give yourselves to those things in this world. And if you don't have them, you align yourself with people who do in hopes to at least be seen by others as powerful, popular, prosper, prosperous, and prestigious. Whether it's by name dropping or virtue signaling, we're all tempted to align ourselves by what the world says matters most. The cross turns significance 
and value and meaning on its head. And it becomes what ultimately defines us and our worth before God. Not the worldly definition of significance. So this is the problem. Now, if we go on to verses 5 through 17, we'll see that Paul says, not just is there a problem, but this is a serious problem. This is a significant problem. This is a really big problem. Why would Paul focus on this particular issue? I mean, you have a church that's dealing with a wide variety of challenges. Issues of morality, sexual immorality, incest, lawsuits among believers. There's, there's marriage issues all over the place. There's, there's doctrinal issues. They're dividing up over how they celebrate the Lord's Supper, what the resurrection means, spiritual gifts, just to name a few. There's a lot of problems in this church. But this is where Paul starts. Why focus on this? Why make such a big deal? To help us understand the severity of the problem, Paul develops in these verses two helpful analogies, two useful images. One is that of an agricultural image and one is an architectural image. So verses 5 to 9, we see this agricultural image. Paul tells us to consider a large farm, and maybe you can do that right now. Just picture a large farm where the church here in this picture is portrayed as the field. And the leaders of the church, here Paul and Apollos, are but servants on that farm. The word here used is diakonos, which is where we get our word for deacon. It could be translated like a farmhand, or just think of like a, a table waiter. Not necessarily a slave, that would have been a different word. This is like a farm hand. Each of these leaders with a, a different sort of assignment, a different set of gifts, they are made and wired differently. One plants, the other waters. And to heap excessive praise or to elevate one over the other would make no sense whatsoever. For both are necessary, right, for the produce on that farm. In verse 6 and 7, I planted, Paulus watered, but God gave the growth. If I had my Bible and a pen, I would underline, maybe even circle that phrase right there. God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. According to this image, the church is God's field. And as God's field, the church itself is, or at least it should be, a place of growth for God's people. How is the church to grow? Maybe you're asking yourself that question right now about our church. How is our church to grow? What does growth look like here in this year of renewal? Well, Paul preached the word of God. Specifically, he preached, we saw before, Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul has an assignment and he does it. He's faithful to it. Apollos comes along on that same farm and he too preaches. He teaches the word of God. And these are the primary means by which God uses, God uses ultimately to grow his people. These are the ordinary means of grace which have extraordinary power because God himself is the one who works through these servants to bring about the growth. Folks, this is good news for us this morning. This is phenomenal news. God uses servants, regular, normal people, ordinary means of grace. And his growth, the growth of the church, isn't dependent on them and their ability 
In fact, I would argue what we see historically through the church, that, that where they have little ability, where they don't have the greatest name, is where you see the most growth because God is after bringing glory to himself. And so he works through things like weaknesses and persecution and suffering just to prove the point. We're here some 2,000 years later. Why? Not because Paul was a phenomenal missionary. I mean, he was. Not because Apollos was an amazing orator. Trust me, he was. But because God gave the growth. So as we dream, and I would invite you, I hope you are in the habit of dreaming about this church. As we dream about this church, we can take heart. We can be encouraged. Because it does not matter. From one season to the next, God will, will, will bring in servants, will bring in leaders, whether it's deacons or ministers or pastors or, or whatever. And God himself is the one who's ultimately responsible and the only one who's powerful and equipped enough to produce anything. It is God who gave the growth. That's good news. That's really good news. I'm off my outline. That's okay. I think of Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So this morning, we, we are all in on God. All right? And hopefully it's not anything unique to this morning. Because this is what we believe to be true. Parkview, take courage. Take heart. God is the one who gives the growth and if that's true, people, if that's true, brothers and sisters, why would we not give ourselves wholeheartedly to prayer? Why would we not? If this is really true, if God's the one who is producing growth in us and through us as a people, why would we not commit ourselves to, to crying out and asking him to do what only he can do? Why would we not? Now, this is not, this goes against conventional wisdom. It goes against worldly wisdom. This doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But neither do we, according to the world, right? Because we are a people who are fashioned and who are shaped by the cross. By the cross. Lord have mercy. 10 through 17, there's an architectural uh, image that he paints. An architectural image he paints. So he transitions from the countryside to the city now. From the farm to a building site. Where the church is God's building. The leaders are the builders. And Christ himself is the foundation of the building. So Paul lays the foundation of Christ here in Corinth. Apollos and other leaders would come along and would build upon this work. It is the project as a whole which is of importance and if that's the case, how foolish would it be to focus on one particular aspect of the building and simply praise the one who's in charge of framing or the one who would be in charge of hanging the sheetrock? Especially since the builders should be seen as working together toward a common vision. God's role here in this image is more implicit as he stands behind the building and acts ultimately as the owner of the building and the judge of the building, assessing the quality of the work and holding the workers accountable for what they've built. We're told here, you can look at verses, see where is it at? 
Verse 12. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will, will test what sort of work each one has done. The day of the Lord here is a time of final judgment. And this fire would, would distinguish between what is good on this building and what is bad on this building. Only certain materials, Paul asserts, have a shot of surviving. Things like gold, silver, precious metals. For us, we look at that and we think, what? Who puts, a, who puts gold in their walls? Well, Solomon to start. Back then, it wouldn't have been unusual to have gold, silver, precious metals fashioned into the walls of a temple or a building. While the wood and the hay... They don't stand a chance. They are burned. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Both these images, that of the farm and agricultural and that's, this of an architectural, bring out sort of different features about the church and the responsibility of its members. Here, in this one, we learn specifically that God cares for his church and he doesn't just use leaders to build it. He also holds them accountable for what they have built. He judges their work. What is happening at Corinth is a serious problem. What a warning for us today. As we are tempted to, to focus on things such as like human personality or charm or smarts when we're assessing leaders. But God tells us, and it is repeated, that, that it is, is the repeated, passionate, spirit-anointed proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified that should remain the focus and the center of our ministry. This is what we are to, to build our ministry on, the constant proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is what is to be at the center of this pulpit one Sunday after the next. We proclaim a crucified Jesus. And apart from him, we don't stand a chance. It's the cross that divides humanity one side to the other. And we do nobody a service when we hide behind, when we are, are fearful of maybe of what we are or are not teaching on a Sunday morning, what people may or may not receive and perceive that to be. We, as, as, as ministers, as leaders, as, as, as a church, must keep the cross central. Why? Because this is God. We are God's temple. The church is God's. His spirit, we see in verse 16 and 17, dwells here. As a people, we are his and those who work against what belongs to God, those who try to divide and destroy it, God holds them accountable for those who divide or destroy what belongs to him. His, as there's nothing more precious on this earth to God, then his church, then his church. This is a serious problem. So, is there any hope? Is there a solution? What is the, what's the solution to this problem? Well, we see this in verses 18 through 23. And I'll just confess, guys, I think historically, I heard these verses in a song one time, and it's years ago, and I thought, what in the world does that mean? For me, historically, these have been some of the most perplexing words in all of Scripture. But this week, as I've just been studying it, they have become some of the sweetest words to me. And I hope that they will be to you as well. Remember, this 
is Paul's argument. You are struggling with jealousy and strife. It's causing division as you align yourself with leaders. Don't do it because, verses 18 and 23, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. So all of this is under the umbrella of wisdom. From the really end of chapter 1 to here. He's, he's taking, you guys are misunderstanding the gospel. Wisdom of the world is dictating how you operate in here. Let me give you an example. Chapter 3. So how do you solve it? Paul turns his attention back here to the issue of wisdom. What's happening out there is making its way in here. See this in verse 120, chapter 1, verse 27. God chose what is foolish in the world, namely the cross, to shame the wise. Choose, he chose the weak, to shame the strong, and the loaded and despised in the world he lifted up. What is happening in chapter 3 is a prime example of the church abandoning the wisdom of God and the way of the cross and being influenced by the culture around them. Your boasting in your leaders makes sense according to worldly wisdom, but not according to the cross. Verse 21. So let no one boast in men. These are the words for me have historically perplexed me. Let no one boast in men for all things are yours. For all things are yours? For all things are mine? What? I see a couple cars out there right now that I wouldn't mind claiming as my own. Is that what he's talking about? What is he saying? For all things are Yours. Paul argues that there's no place in the church for boasting in one another because all things are yours. That's his argument. Well, to help us understand what he means by that, he gives us eight helpful descriptors of what these all things are. Look at verse 22. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. On the surface, it just gets more confusing, does it not? All things are mine. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the world, life, death, present, future. All things are mine. And this is an argument for not boasting in men. Absolutely yes. Folks, we are constantly tempted to grasp and find significance in all sorts of things that this world has to offer. But if God has given us servants, he's given us pastors, just look at the pastors in your church, the, the leaders in the church, the deacons in your church, he calls them farm hands. And what they were doing is they were elevating the leaders up here and say, I belong to Paul, therefore I'm valuable. What God is saying is it's the other way around. As his church... God has given us Paul. Paul belongs to them. Why? Because they're in Christ and Christ is God's. So these pastors, these men that they think they want to elevate here, God says, how ridiculous is it for you to boast in them when they belong to you? I've given them so that you would grow, so that I could use them. 
They are yours. Not just, this, not just that you have Paul, those of you who want to align yourself with Paul, but guess what? I also gave you Apollos, and I gave you Cephas. Shoot, I gave you the whole world. Life and death, all those things I make to work for you. So that we can say, as followers of Jesus, oh, death, where is your sting? You serve me, not the other way around. This is the victory that we have in the cross. Those things, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're in Christ, you have all things. He loves us so much. He cares for us so much that he has blessed us with everything we need. And he has ordered the cosmos in such a way that regardless of whether the sun rises or sets, whether we see tomorrow or not, they, everything, belongs to us because we're in Christ. Christ is God's, the creator and the sustainer. Folks, if you're here today and you are in Jesus, praise the Lord, you are more blessed than you can even imagine. This is good news. So, so how, if that's true, how ridiculous would it be for me to say, oh, I, Ed's my man. What? I'm with Ed. Ed, you're a great guy. I mean, great guy. But that would be ridiculous when everything, life and death, already belongs to me. Guys, this is amazing. Do you see how much God loves his church and how much he has given to us as his people? We are so blessed. And so while we're tempted to think of the world out there as constantly threatening us and that we have to cower in a corner of fear, that is not the case. God has called us his people. He has given us a special charge. And we should boldly proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified wherever we go because everything is ours. It's amazing. It's amazing. What good news it is this morning, guys. What good news it is. So my challenge to you, as you consider just God's word here and 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I hope this shapes your understanding of what a church should be like. It should not be like the rest of the world, right? This is a place where the greatest among us are the least among us. Where the cross shapes both vertically our relationship and how we connect to God and also shapes and forms the way that we love and serve and care for one another. And this is not a place where we show partiality, where we allow the, the things that are out there to shape how we, who we choose to love in here. This is a place where we give ourselves freely because everything has been freely given to us. This is a radical picture Folks, we are a different type of people. And we serve an amazing God who blesses us in more ways than we can imagine. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much as we consider the ways that you have blessed us and given us, Lord. Um, Lord, I pray that we would be the church that you have designed us to be. We recognize that we got some problems. Lord, but we ask 
in the same way that you graciously corrected and instructed and encouraged the church at Corinth, Lord, we ask that you would do the same thing to us and that you would allow us to be a people that can clearly discern your purposes for us and that we would humbly submit to them and pursue them so that your church would grow. Lord, would you grow our church? Would you grow me? Would you grow all of us, Lord? We ask these things in your name. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? We're going to sing Be That My Vision. And as we sing Be That My Vision, this is a prayer that we're praying in our hearts to God, asking him to help us keep Christ at the center of our hearts.
heart of my own heart. Listen to each other and praise the Lord as we sing doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him above Thank you, church, so much. I'll ask you just to grab a seat real quick. I just have one last announcement and kind of a special one. Um, perhaps you noticed, if you go to Parkview East on a regular basis, that there is a new instrument in our midst. Um, and so this is the first Sunday that we've, we've had this actually in storage as we have been trying to do some build-out. There's some concrete work we didn't want it to get dusty on and you know, destroy it or something like that. But we've had it in storage over here for the past year. Um, and this baby grand piano is being given to us as a church um, in memory of Bob Redlinger. Uh, many of you may know Bob, and um, uh, his family is back here. Uh, Cindy, Jerry, Amanda, Corey, and Patty, if you guys could just raise your hands so people could see you. Um, Cindy, um, Bob's wife, is here, and um, they wanted to bless this church um, in memory of Bob by giving us this, this, uh, this beautiful piano. Bob, for those of you who don't know, and I never had the opportunity to meet Bob, um, but I know his family, and that says a lot for me about him, and I know many of you knew him well, um, was involved in ministry at Parkview for many, many years, especially passions of his were outreach and international friends. Um, he was also involved in building the body of Christ through leading small groups, um, teaching special classes and workshops, um, I, while I did not get a chance to meet Bob, what I know is that he was a man after God's heart and he was a huge blessing to our church and so is his family. And so they're choosing to bless us to continue sort of his legacy and to continue to bless us with this gift. And it's their desire um, that, that um, this gift would be used to help us just glorify and worship God from one week to the next as we seek to see his work done in and through this people. Um, unfortunately, I don't think Arlen comes with the piano. Um, so it would be great if he did. I don't, maybe just consider that. Consider that. Um, but I do know we have a lot of people who are very capable of playing it. Um, so would you join me in just thanking Bob's family, Cindy? And Thank you guys so much. All right, so maybe Arlen, it seems appropriate that you would play some music while our wonderful usher, servant, farmhand over here, Ed, uh, prepares to dismiss us. Just stay seated until Eddie's going to make his way up and we'll kind of, kind of fellowship out there, okay? So how about it? Thank you.
How's it going? Doing all right? How's school? How's school going? 